all the people's eyes are turned towards the river. May God in his mercy raise the water. For seven years the Nile has been low, and without its water, the crops in their fields wither, and famine chokes the land. The year is 1072, and the once great Fatimid Caliphate is in turmoil. As the people starve, the various regiments of the army ravage throughout the country, fighting for control of cities soaked in blood and screaming in pain. Along the Egyptian coast, from Alexandria to Damietta, the Friday prayers are said in the name of the Abbasid Caliph. In Cairo and Fustat, the hunger is so fierce that whoever goes out of their house is killed and eaten, and whoever stays inside starves to death. The palace of the Caliph has been stripped of its wealth, its precious metals, its jewels, its books, to pay the soldiers. And the Caliph himself lives only from the charity of others. On the Levantine coast, in Accra, the Armenian general, Badr al-Jamali, is waiting. Waiting for the Caliph to give him the free reign he needs to bring order. He won't have to wait for long. And welcome to History of the Uchmer, episode 1.8, Pens and Swords. Today, we're going back to Cairo to watch as the Fatimid Caliphate slips out of the hands of its caliph imam, first into the hands of its bureaucracy, the regime of the pen, and finally into the tight grip of military viziers, the regime of the sword. Guess which one turns out to be mightier? Egypt, in particular its military institutions, is important to us not only because the Fatimids will be in control of Jerusalem when the Crusaders arrive, but because the Fatimid military tradition will be the source of two of the most dangerous foes the Uchmer states will face, the Ayyubids and the Mamluk Sultanate. Both of these regimes will rise out of the military to seize control of the Nile and its environs for themselves and they will both consistently clash with their Frankish neighbors in the Levant. For starters, in 1169, the Sunni Kurd, Salah ad-Din, the Righteousness of the Faith, will be named Vizier of Fatimid Egypt. He will proceed to abolish Shia Islam in Egypt, and when the last caliph dies in 1071, the Fatimid regime will come to a final ignoble end, and Saladin will become the first sultan of Egypt and Syria. He will then set about the task of ending the Frankish presence in his backyard. Saladin's path to power had been carved out before him, though, by previous viziers of the sword, who had increasingly sidelined the caliph imam into a ceremonial position. The last Fatimid caliph truly able and willing to stand up to his advisors and soldiers was the mad caliph, al-Hakim. In hindsight, much of what was strange about al-Hakim's reign could be seen as somewhat logical. The consistent administrative purges could be explained as attempts to target political threats, and his reprisals against religious minorities were perhaps attempts to earn goodwill against the xenophobic populace of Egypt. That doesn't explain the killing of all the dogs, though. Whether his persecution was rooted in true religious zeal or just real politique, starting in 1012, though, it seems that al-Hakim's mood had softened some. The caliph first allowed the peaceful emigration of Christians and Jews to other lands. Many Melkites took him up on the offer, 
due to their close ties with the neighboring Byzantine Empire, they made their way to Roman lands. Our historian friend, Yaya, was one of these, hence why he's known as Yaya Lantaki, Yaya of Antioch. Later on, Al-Hakim put the word out that all recent converts to Islam could return to their original faiths without any retribution. Many new converts had only done so in the face of the harsh measures they faced if they stayed Christian or Jewish. Now they could just switch back, basically legally sanctioned apostasy. And though many must have thought it was some sort of trap, it appears not. Al-Hakim took no action against those who went back to their churches and synagogues. He also began to allow the reconstruction of churches and synagogues previously destroyed. Our sources don't have the hindsight we do, and accordingly, they come up with interesting theories to explain the Mad Khali's sudden change of heart. Yahya of Antioch gives us the account of a buddy of his that worked as Al-Hakim's physician. According to this source, the Caliph truly was mad. His mood would shift violently without warning, and he had to be soothed with baths of violet oils. Yahya sees something like what we might label manic depression in this description of symptoms, and he explicitly refers to the Caliph's disease as melancholy. Let's keep Yahya's Melkite Christian forced emigre bias against Al-Hakim in mind here, though. Yahya also states that the improvements seen in Al-Hakim's treatment of Christians were due to, get this, having struck up a friendship with a Melkite monk. Apparently, the Caliph had taken to long chats with the head of a local monastery, Amba Salmun. What's even stranger is that the history kept by the Coptic Christians tells an identical story. But in this case, the Caliph strikes up a friendship with one of their monks, a man named Pomen. Obviously, the biases are on clear display here. Both churches want to be seen as responsible for ending the reign of terror. But the fact that they tell such similar stories is interesting. Regardless of why he suddenly decided to end persecution of Dhimis, uh, religious minorities, Al-Hakim's change of heart was also accompanied by a move towards asceticism. From 1013 on, apparently the Caliph stopped taking any sort of pride whatsoever in his physical appearance. He let his unwashed hair and filthy nails grow out, and he wore the same clothes day after day until a stink of dirt and sweat. Many sources also note that the Caliph was indulging more and more in one of his favorite pastimes, riding through the city. Going as far back as 1002, Al-Hakim was recorded as enjoying daily rides through Cairo, often at night. Yahya didn't miss this fact, and he includes insomnia as one of the symptoms of Al-Hakim's melancholia. The Caliph would often take these rides unaccompanied by guards, and stop to engage in conversation with random citizens. This is actually the source of a lot of weird anecdotes about Al-Hakim, which we're not going to get into. By the 1010s, these rides were becoming more and more frequent, up to six times a day. He'd also abandoned his horse for a more humbling donkey. And eventually, one day, in 1021, 400 years after the death of the Prophet, Al-Hakim went out for a ride on his donkey and never came back. His body was never even recovered, only the donkey and rags stained in blood. In the wake of his disappearance, which uh, technically remains unsolved, conspiracy theories popped up like nobody's business. Many pointed a finger at the Caliph's sister, Sid al-Mulk. Whether she murdered her brother or not, we don't know. But Sid al-Mulk definitely benefited from her brother's disappearance. See, al-Hakim's eccentricity had also influenced his succession plans. The former Caliph seems to have intended to split the Caliphate and the Imamate, 
naming one heir as successor to his political role and another as successor to his spiritual role. This was shocking and threatened to unravel the entire ethos of the Fatimid Caliphate. In a lot of ways, Al-Hakim's reign reminds me of no one so much as Basil II, the Byzantine emperor, who would die just four years later himself, in 1025. Both men precipitated massive succession crises, Al-Hakim by naming too many successors and threatening to split the imamate and the caliphate, and Basil II by naming too few and leaving his throne to whoever proved themselves powerful or cunning enough to earn it. The similarities don't end there. Both men had come to power as children and had to overcome the palace intrigue going on over their heads to wield true and not just symbolic might. Both men ruled at a time when apocalyptic prophecies were rife. Al-Hakim, because as I mentioned, he disappeared on the 400th anniversary of the Prophet's death, and Basil II because of the millennial celebration of the birth and death of Jesus. More importantly for us, both men's realms would prove impossible to control for their successors. The next five decades of Fatimid history mirror similar developments in the Byzantine world, with tangled webs of coups and counter-coups. The main difference is that the caliphate, because of its strict dynastic orthodoxy, couldn't be just seized by anyone. While queen regents and viziers could rise to be the power behind the throne, they would never be able to sit in it themselves, not without dismantling the entire caliphate. So instead, the caliph would be kept in a ceremonial role, and a bloody game of musical chairs would play out around him. The music started playing immediately after Al-Hakim's death. The caliph's sister, Sid al-Muk, quickly ensured that the cousins set to inherit the caliphate and imamate as separate entities were done away with. And instead, Al-Hakim's 15-year-old son became the caliph imam. His regnal name hints at the correction of course he was meant to symbolize. Azahir li'izaz dinala, he who appears openly to strengthen the religion of God. Azahir would not be doing any of this strengthening himself, though. During his 14-year reign, he would never play a large role in the governance of the caliphate. Despite the fact that at 15, Al-Hakim was already taking charge and ordering the murder of his tutor Barjawan, his son was quickly placed under the control of a regency, headed by none other than his sweet old auntie, Sit al-Mulk. So, given how things turned out, you can see the clear appeal of the theory that Sid al-Mulk was behind her brother's disappearance. Even before Al-Hakim's reign, Sid al-Mulk had been a powerful force. When her father died, she had even attempted to name her own successor to the caliphate, before the eunuch Barjawan beat her to it and elevated Al-Hakim. She might not have succeeded in getting her puppet on the throne that time, but she still had at her disposal various avenues to make her influence felt throughout Al-Hakim's reign, not least of which was her immense wealth, which rivaled that of the caliph himself. And now, in the figure of her nephew, Az-Zahir, she finally had the caliph imam marionette she'd always wanted. But Al-Hakim would not rest easy in whatever unmarked grave his body had ended up in. No, 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 no. Sid al-Mulk and her entourage of administrators were soon confronted with the specter of Al-Hakim in the form of the Druzes. During Al-Hakim's reign, the Ismaili Shias had perfected missionary work, known as Dawah in Arabic. The Fatimids saw their Dawah as a potent tool in laying the groundwork for Fatimid dominion over the whole of Islam. And the missionaries themselves, the Da'i, became important political figures in Fatimid Egypt. However, some members of the Dawah started to take things 
a bit too far, at least from the perspective of uh, more orthodox believers. They began to speak about a Hakim in more divine terms, more than God's representative on earth. They started to view a Hakim as God himself. This was not unprecedented. For imams or caliphs to begin to receive worship in their own right was a bit of a trope. Nevertheless, it was usually quashed outright. But, surprise, surprise, Al-Hakim didn't do this. Now, the degree to which he fomented his cult status as a divine being was debated at the time and is still debated today. But he most definitely did not go out of his way to outlaw this belief, which eventually gave rise to a new religion. The founder of this religion was a certain Hamza ibn Ali, a member of the Dawah. However, a bit counterintuitively, their name, Druze, comes from one of his rivals, Nashtakin Ardarazi. The fact that this name Druze was slapped onto them, even though it's not really the name of their founder, shows the lack of understanding that those on the outside had regarding the Druze. This lack of understanding wasn't exactly correct about the Druze either because despite being born out of Ismaili missionary work, the Druze soon became a hermetically sealed ethno-religious group, a state they retain to this day. The Druze religion is incredibly esoteric and difficult to understand. Even its own members are kept in the dark about certain things. Over time, the Druze completely separated from Islam, and after centuries of uh, spiritual isolation, they have become their own unique branch of Abrahamic faith, somewhat similar to the split over the divinity of Jesus that separates Christians from Jews. In the wake of Al-Hakim's death and Sid al-Mulk's rise to power, the Druzes, in their embryonic form, were heavily persecuted in Egypt, driving them out of the region and to the edges of the caliphate. This is part of the reason why the Druze are primarily found in the Levant nowadays, in countries like Syria and Lebanon. Though Sid al-Mulk was heavy on the Druze persecution, she reversed the persecution of Christians and sought to reforge political relations with the Byzantine Romans, as well as the Melkite population in the caliphate. I will remind you that her mother was a Melkite, or Orthodox Christian, and possibly a Byzantine from Sicily. What's more, her uncles were the patriarchs of the Orthodox faith in Alexandria and Jerusalem, in theory equals to the Pope in Rome and the patriarchs of Constantinople and Antioch. So she was definitely plugged into that world. However, here I need to make a correction. I mentioned in episode 3 that the deal with the Byzantines allowing them to rebuild the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem after its destruction at the hands of Al-Hakim was negotiated on the Fatimid side by Sid al-Mulk. This is wrong. It was a mistake. It was negotiated in 1027, by which point Sid al-Mulk was dead. Though Sid al-Mulk did make overtures towards the Byzantines and generally make the caliphate more welcoming to Christians, particularly Melkites, it was the administrators running the show after her death who worked out this particular arrangement. The reason I got my dates mixed up is that Sid al-Mulk died just a few years after her rise in 1023. I hope that after a lifetime of working towards that goal, she savored it. The following five years, from 1023 to 1028, were a mad scramble for power. Now the caliph, Az-Zahir, was still around, but as I mentioned, he never showed any true interest in governance, and in the vacuum left once both baby brother al-Hakim and big sister Sid al-Mulk were gone, it was the administrators who duked it out for control of the caliphate. And it's time I introduce one of the most interesting players in this Egyptian Game of Thrones. When she finally succeeded in acquiring control over the caliph in 1021, Sid al-Mulk had brought with her to prominence the administrator, al-Jarjarai, who was the steward of her sizable estate. Al-Jajarai 
was originally from Iraq and had first come into government service as a secretary for the chief of police under al-Hakim, a black eunuch from sub-Saharan Africa named Gain. Gain, like so many functionaries under al-Hakim, had fallen under suspicion, and his secretary, al-Jarjarai, had been punished by association. The administrator had had his arms cut off at the elbow. Let me repeat that in case you missed it. He had his arms cut off at the elbow. This earned him the epithet Alakta, the amputated one. Despite his handicap, he continued to work in the caliphate, both for Hakim, who seems to have regretted his hasty hand-choppy-choppy decision, and for Sit al-Muk. As I mentioned, he was the steward of her estate. That gave him control of a lot of cash. And in the end, making use of the wealth and the connections his association with Sid al-Mulk had provided him, it was the amputated one who grasped the reins of power. Oh, wait, l- let me try that again. It was the amputated one who placed the rest under his thumb. Wait, 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 one more time. It was the amputated one who played his hand best. Eh, I can do better. I will do better. Anyway, in January 1028, Al-Jajarai definitively won the struggle for control of the caliphate by being named vizier. In stark contrast to his predecessors, he would hold this position for nearly two decades until his death in 1045. Al-Jajarai would even outlive the caliph. In 1035, after an honestly unremarkable life of leisure, Az-Zahir died, and the caliphate passed to his seven-year-old son, who took the name Abu Tamim Mad al-Bustansir Billah, he who asked for victory by God. And though al-Jajari was able to hold on to his new position as vizier, the supreme authority he'd once had was now being challenged by the new queen mother, Rasad. Rasad is an interesting character, but to understand her role in the politics to come, we need to first quickly explore the role of women in the Fatimid Caliphate, particularly that of slaves and concubines, and then the various ethnicities in the Caliphate, particularly the ethnic divisions in the military. Now, this is the medieval era, so I think it should go without saying that women were oppressed. But the way in which they were oppressed did vary by region, and women, like anyone else, often found ways to wield power based on both their individual merits and their circumstances. The Fatimid Caliphate took its name from a woman, Fatima, the Prophet's daughter, and though this didn't mean that there was anything resembling gender equality in the realm, there was a certain degree of respect given to women, particularly those related by blood to the Caliph Imam, his daughters, like Sid al-Mulk, daughter of al-Aziz, and his mother, like Rasad, mother of al-Mustansir. These women often gained control of large amounts of wealth in their own name, and even military support utilizing both their own bodyguard, which could be quite large, and alliances with military commanders. One aspect that was noticeably missing from Fatimid gender politics was that of marriage alliances. The Fatimids rarely, if ever, married off the female members of their dynasty, so Sita al-Mulk was never sent off to a foreign court, as might have happened if she was Byzantine or French or a Seljuk Turk. And the Caliph Imams almost never married highborn women, we already saw an example of this with Al-Aziz, whose favorite concubine, Sid al-Muk's mother, was a captured Melkite slave. It was not uncommon for Muslim rulers to have slave concubines of diverse origin, and for the children of these unions to be recognized. 
but the Fatimid Caliph Imams almost exclusively chose their heirs from among the children of their concubines. Our new queen mother, Rasad, had indeed been a slave concubine, but from 1036 to 1074, she was probably the most powerful person in the caliphate, a real Cinderella story. Rasad was powerful because she not only had her political power, but because she managed to get her hands on military support as well. Ironically though, this would end up being her downfall. Now, Fatimid military forces were distinct in two main ways. The first thing is that they were almost all foreigners, and the second is that the army was divided along ethnic lines. Traditionally, the Fatimids had two basic sectors of the army, the Maghariba, or Westerners, and the Masharika, or Easterners. As the name implies, the Maghariba are from the Maghreb, the West, that is, Western North Africa, a region that today encompasses modern countries like Tunisia and Morocco. You may recall that it was in this region that the Fatimids had first come to power, and when they made the move east, to Egypt, they brought with them forces from that area. Inside the broader Maghariba group, there were smaller regiments. The vast majority were Berber tribes, like the Kutama, but there were also groups like the Kaiseria, or the Men of Caesar, a reference to a Roman ethnic identity. These Kaiseria, or Caesar's men, may have been soldiers of Byzantine origin, or perhaps the descendants of the Latin-speaking Romans who had lived in Africa Proconsularis, the North African province of the Western Roman Empire, which the Arabs still called Ephrikia, after the Roman name. In case you're not familiar with Roman history, North Africa had come into the Roman Empire during the Punic Wars. Uh, you know, Hannibal crossing the Alps with elephants, the Battle of Cannae, Cartago de Lenda Est, uh, all that. Over the following centuries, it was Romanized, and though the native Berbers were still common in the rural sectors, the urban areas were dominated by Latin-speaking African Romans. North Africa was eventually lost to the Western Empire when it was conquered by the Vandals in the 5th century, who went on to sack Rome and ensure that their name would live on as a synonym for urban destruction. But then, the Vandals got the boot just a century later, when the Eastern Roman Emperor Justinian reconquered the region, as well as Italy and Spain. So, when the Arabs arrived in the region during the 7th century, they found three distinct ethnic groups. A relatively small amount of foreign, Greek-speaking Byzantine Romans who had come after Justinian's reconquest, as well as the native Roman-speaking population who made up the majority of the urban population, and the native Berber population who were more common in the rural sectors. So for the Fatimids, a reference to men of Caesar, or Romans, could refer to either of the first two groups, or perhaps more recent military forces, directly from the Byzantine Roman Empire. Now, Looking the other direction, the Masharika were from the Mashrik, the eastern edge of the Arab world. Today, this region contains Egypt, the Levant, and the Arabian Peninsula. In the context of the Fatimid military, the Masharika were primarily Turks, often enslaved Mamluks imported from the steppe. But the faction also included Kurds and Persians. During al-Hakim's reign, perhaps in an attempt to avoid further conflict between the Masharika and the Maghariba, a third element had begun to make its presence felt in the military. These were the Abid al-Shira, or bot slaves, who were from sub-Saharan Africa, a region known in Arabic as Bilad as-Sudan, the land of the blacks, referring to the dark skin of its inhabitants. This is obviously where the modern country of Sudan gets its name, but in medieval times, the term was used much more generally for all of sub-Saharan Africa. These black Africans, the Sudan, were acquired through the trans-Saharan slave trade, and as their numbers grew, so did their influence 
and their conflict with particularly the Masharika. Why is this important? Well, because Rasad was herself from Sub-Saharan Africa, and after gaining political power for her role as the Queen Mother, she also soon gained military support from the Sudan, the Black African regiments, whose numbers she increased with purchases of further slave soldiers. This alliance proved to be a double-edged sword, though. While on the one hand, she had an advantage over the amputated one, Al-Jajarai, on the other hand, it provoked the Magariba and Masharika forces, who started to feel the threat of possible obsolescence. Immediately after the ascension of Rasad's seven-year-old son, Al-Mustansir, to the role of Caliph Imam in 1036, both the Magariba and Masharika made a show of force and menacingly demanded a pay raise from the new regime. And in 1047, the Masharika would further flex their muscles and murder one of Rasad's henchmen, interestingly enough, her former master, who became one of Rasad's closest allies, and who she had sent to renegotiate the Turkish forces' salaries. Still, with her military backing, Rasad was able to form an opposition force to Al-Jajarayu's role as vizier, and the two traded political blows until the vizier's death nine years later, in 1045. The 30 years following his death would be some of the most traumatic in Fatimid history, as Rasad struggled against the remnants of Al-Jajarayu's government in attempts to consolidate power in her own hands. By 1050, Rasad had succeeded in having one of her own men named vizier, Al-Jazuri, but by this point, the caliphate was in shambles. The political infighting since the death of al-Hakim had been paired with environmental disaster and famine, both of which had crippled Fatimid authority over local rulers. When they made the move to Egypt, the Fatimids had left behind vassals in both Ifriqiya, western North Africa, and Sicily. Now, Fatimid rule in these regions was disintegrating. In Ifriqiya, the Fatimids had placed a native Berber dynasty in charge, the Zirids. But in 1045, facing pressure from the local Sunni majority, Al-Mu'iz, the Zirid ruler, rejected both Fatimid dominion and the Ismaili Shia creed. He declared instead for the Abbasid Caliph. What followed was a bloody civil war, which saw the introduction of the Banu Hilal, a Bedouin tribe originally from Arabia. The Banu Hilal became infamous for ravaging the Ifriqian countryside, turning what had once been the agricultural breadbasket of the Western Roman Empire into an arid desert. That's how the story goes, at least. More recent historians have questioned the actual impact of the Banu Hilal. Anyway, the Zirids lost total control over the center and only managed to hold on to their coastal properties, moving their capital from Kairouan to Madia on the Tunisian coast. There, they would begin to focus on trade and piracy as a source of revenue. This would eventually bring them into conflict with the Italian merchant republics to their north, cities like Genoa and Pisa, a situation we'll definitely be coming back to. As for Sicily, the Fatimids had installed the Kalbids, who had ruled there since the 940s. But in 1053, the last Kalbid ruler died, and his subordinates began a brutal conflict for control of the island. We've already met two of these men. They are Ibn al-Thumna, who ruled in Syracuse, and Ibn al-Hawas, who ruled in Agrigento. In 1060, Ibn al-Thumna would make an alliance with Robert Guiscard, and within a few decades, all of Sicily would be lost to the Normans. But the newly minted vizier, al-Yazuri, in Cairo, was perhaps more concerned about the east, where an even larger horsebound threat loomed. In 1040, Tugrul of the Seljuks had defeated the Ghaznavids in Iran and become the new sword of the Abbasid Caliph. In 1050, while al-Yazuri was getting his promotion to vizier, Tugrul conquered the city of Isfahan in Iran and made it his capital. 
Baghdad and direct access to the Abbasid Caliph was just a stone's throw away for the Turk. Egypt's agriculture and food supply have always been tied to the seasonal flooding of the Nile, and during the 11th century, environmental pressures affected the regularity of this process. In 1055, there was a low Nile and a grain shortage in Egypt, so al-Yazuri asked for aid from the Fatimid's traditional frenemies, the Byzantines. The request was received by our old friend, Romanos Monomachos, who was more than happy to lend a helping hand. Unfortunately for the Fatimids, Monomachos died just months later, and he was replaced by the Empress Theodora, the last of the Macedonians. Perhaps out of spite for any decision made by Monomachos, who she had hated, Theodora refused to send any grain to Egypt. In response, Al-Yazuri sent a military force to capture the coastal territory south of Antioch, a bit of a slap on the wrist for having gone back on the arrangement. But the Fatimid forces were easily repelled, and the commander was captured. The Fatimid-Byzantine relationship broke down even further when later that same year, Theodora acknowledged the Seljuk Sultan Tugrul and allowed him to sponsor reparations to the mosque in Constantinople. She also changed the Friday prayers to honor the Seljuk Sultan and the Abbasid Caliph, instead of the Fatimid Imam Caliph. The Seljuks were definitely on the rise. In the same year, 1055, Tugrul took the city of Baghdad. This event actually presented an unexpected opportunity for the Fatimids, when the Turkish Mamluk general al-Basasiri wrote to Cairo, asking for support in taking back Baghdad. Al-Yazuri readily agreed. With Fatimid forces spread a bit thin in Ifriqiya and south of Antioch, the support came in the form of a ton of cash. This was a mistake on al-Yazuri's part. When al-Basasiri's campaign seemed to falter for a moment, the remnants of al-Jarjari's government, who had been lying in wait, used the opportunity to level accusations against al-Yazuri, among them for the fact that he had squandered the wealth of the state on a doomed mission, and that he had brought the Banu Hilal to Ifriqiya and destroyed the once-rich province. This second charge was probably not true, but the smear campaign against al-Yazuri was so successful that it's only relatively recently that historians have started to question the veracity of this claim. This opposition to al-Yazuri was able to win the support of the Caliph al-Mustansir, who appears to have grown resentful of al-Yazuri's wealth. Now, al-Mustansir had been Caliph for 20 years and never involved himself in politics, leaving all that to his mother and administrators. The revival of the role of Caliph Imam as a political force caused the breakdown of the system that had been set up between the Caliph's regents and viziers, leading to a total collapse in governance. None of the viziers between 1058 and 1074 held on to the position for more than a few months. Many were dismissed and then brought back multiple times. The records are so jumbled, we don't even know exactly what happened. But in total, a minimum of 30 and a possible maximum of 54 men held the role during this 16-year period. Ironically, even though it cost him his life, Al-Yazuri's support of Al-Basasiri worked out in the end as the Turkish Mamluk was finally able to fund a revolt by Ibrahim Yinal, which distracted Turgil long enough for al-Basasiri to take Baghdad, and have the Friday prayers said in the honor of the Caliph Imam in Cairo. However, seeing what had happened to al-Yazuri, his replacement refused to send further aid, and without reinforcements, al-Basasiri was unable to hold the city for long. Baghdad was soon back in Turgil's hands. To add on to the secessions in the west, on the Levantine coast, the cities of Tripoli and Tyre 
established themselves as quasi-independent mercantile city-states at this time, mirroring the developments throughout the Mediterranean, as the Italian city of Genoa was similarly renegotiating its relationship with the Holy Roman Empire. As we'll be discussing soon enough, there was big money to be made in Mediterranean trade, and the port cities that dominated that trade were beginning to realize that they didn't need the clunky interference of empires and caliphates anymore. Tripoli would remain an independent city-state under the control of the Banu Amar family, a dynasty of Kutama Berbers, until the arrival of the Crusaders. In 1067, the wheels came off entirely. Without a vizier to balance their competing interests, the Masharika, the Turkish forces, and the Sudan, the black troops, went to war. This conflict was the final result of messy internal politics. On one side was the Queen Mother Rasad and her black regiments, and on the other was the commander of the Turkish forces, Nasir ad-Dawla, who'd used the pent-up hatred the Masharika had for both the Maghariba and the Sudan to bring them under his banner. The conflict raged throughout all of the caliphate as the various army regiments engaged in bloody civil war and tore the realm to shreds. The Masharika soon had control of Cairo, and finding the treasury empty, they looted the palace. To quote from Michael Brett's The Fatimid Empire, The Turks plundered the immense treasure of the dynasty, the hoarded wealth of regalia of gold, silver, jewelry, ivory, glass, ceramics, and fabrics, all worked into the ceremonial objects which had been received as presents and given out as tokens of the caliphate and the imamate. With the treasures of art and craft went the treasures of books, as the libraries were stripped. The chaos raged on, and for seven years, between 1065 and 1072, the Nile stayed low, and famine once again reared its ugly head in Egypt. With the supply lines in disarray, the people starved, and in Cairo, which depended on food deliveries from the countryside, not only was every animal eaten, but the citizens resorted to cannibalism just to stay alive. This is the scene we saw in the opening. The commander of the Turkish forces, Nasir ad-Dawla, set himself up on the coast, controlling a range of territory from Alexandria to Damietta, and he soon made an alliance with the new Seljuk Sultan, Al-Barslan. The Friday prayers were said in honor of the Sultan and the Abbasid Caliph in his region. And Al-Barslan began to make plans to travel south through Syria and take as much of the Fatimid territory as he could, perhaps the whole thing. In 1071, however, Al-Barslan was distracted by a new upstart emperor of the Romans, and his attention was momentarily diverted, as instead of heading south through Syria, he went west to Manzikert, and uh, we know how that story plays out. In Syria, Palestine, the former governor of Damascus was the only thing holding any semblance of a province together. This was Badr al-Jamali, an Armenian slave soldier who had risen through the ranks of the military. He had actually replaced Nasir ad-Dawla as governor of Damascus years earlier, but a revolt in the city had expelled him and he had spent the last few years of civil war trying to piece the Fatimid possessions in the region back together. To this end, he had made an alliance with one of the Turkmen warlords that were becoming omnipresent in the region, a fellow by the name of Atsiz. Well, he thought he had made an alliance. Atsiz did capture Ramla, Damascus, and Jerusalem, but he kept them for himself. There you go, Badr. Task failed successfully. Back in Egypt, Nasir ad-Dawla soon came to realize he had overextended himself politically. The Turks had been happy to follow him in demanding better pay and fighting the Sudan, but this was support born out of convenience. Unlike most of the Masharika, he wasn't even a Turk, he was an Arab Bedouin. What's more, 
His political moves, such as the alliance with the Seljuks, threatened the entire Fatimid dynasty, to which many of the Masharika were still loyal. In 1073, he was murdered by Turkish regiments who had once served him. Seizing this brief window of opportunity, al-Mustansir wrote to Badr al-Jamali, inviting him to take total control of the state. In 1073, in the deep of winter, when sailing was normally far too perilous to attempt, Badr al-Jamali took advantage of an unseasonably tranquil sea and set sail from Acre to Damietta on the Egyptian coast. From there, he made straight for the capital. The Turkish Masharika troops welcomed him with open arms, and he invited the commanders to dinner with him. At the banquet, he had them all murdered. It was a portent of the ruthless rule with which he would govern the caliphate. Wielding both the sword he had earned as a slave soldier and the pen he had been given by a desperate caliph, this military dictator, as he's been described, began a systematic purge of any threats to his regime. Though he couldn't exactly do away with the caliph imam or even the queen mother, he could dispose of all their flunkies. He rounded up the entire string of viziers that had taken turns at the wheel during the crisis years and had them all executed. And making good use of Armenian forces, fleeing the post-manzikert hullabaloo up north, he forcibly removed the remnants of the scattered Masharika and Sudan and Bedouins that had greeted their own little fiefdoms during the civil war. By 1076, he had brought all of Egypt to heel. The caliphate did not escape unscathed, though. Ephrikia and Sicily were lost for good. 1072 marked the date of the Norman seizure of Palermo, and though small pockets of Muslim resistance would remain until 1091, none of these were particularly inclined towards the Fatimid cause. Most of Syria was also lost. This to the Turkmen warlord Atsiz. Atsiz swore allegiance to the Seljuk Sultan Malik Shah, but this was an ephemeral allegiance, and Atsiz was independent in all but name. Politically, though, the instability following the disappearance of al-Hakim had resolved itself. The caliph was now truly just a figurehead. Badr al-Jamali not only had the military acumen to enforce his rule, but the political legitimacy that could only have been granted by a caliph with nowhere else to turn. The queen mother, Rasad, had tried the same strategy, but for whatever reason, her Sudan forces were not strong enough to overcome the Masharika. Military rule would dominate in the caliphate until its final dissolution by Saladin. This first of the military rulers, Badr al-Jamali would rule in the caliphate for two decades until 1094. His death, which was followed by the death of the caliph al-Mustansir in the same year, would lead his son, al-Afdal, to seize power, and in doing so, trigger a schism in Ismaili Shiism. After the death of al-Mustansir, the Ismaili Shias in Persia and Iraq, the product of centuries of missionary work by the Dawah, would come out in defiance of Armenian rule in Egypt and cease to recognize the new puppet caliph in Cairo. Under the missionary, Hassani Saba, they would evolve into an organization known in the West as the Order of the Assassins, in opposition to basically everyone, the Sunni Seljuks, the Fatimid Caliphate, and of course, the Latin Christian Uchermer states. But that's a story for another time. On the next episode of History of the Uchermer, we'll pick up on a thread I left hanging this week. In 1087, enemy ships appeared outside the city of Madia on the Tunisian coast, named for the founder of the Fatimid dynasty, and now the capital of what was left of the Zirid dynasty, after their break with the Fatimids. The ships came from the Italian cities of Genoa and Pisa, and were filled with hordes of bloodthirsty Franks. In a sign of things to come, the Latin Christian forces had been granted indulgences from the Pope himself for the bloody massacre they were soon to visit upon the Muslim inhabitants of the city of Madia. 
The brutal conquest of the city was the culmination of resurgent Italian mercantilism. Where once they had been the junior partners in trade with Egypt and Byzantium, as the two great empires slipped into infighting, the Italians were now setting out to reclaim the Mediterranean Sea, their sea, the Mare Nostrum. <laughs>